Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed, the podcast that's um, about a month late. We, uh, yeah, we, we had some things going on, and then we had some other things going on, and then we had further things going on, and then uh, we had to delay it for another reason, and then another thing came up. And Look, April, what, was, a, April was a goddamn nightmare, it, and we've talked big, about uh, it yeah. in a variety of ways. I had a cancer scare. We ended up going away. It was a whole and, damn uh, thing. And to, and to make things even more daunting... Uh, this poll was a tie, yeah. so we decided to take the top two uh, picks, so it was just twice as much movie. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname. And this is Critically Reclaimed, where every, theoretically, week, uh, we, uh, we ask our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, to vote for a movie on a streaming service. We pick a different streaming service every week. We pick four movies. Uh, the only thing they have in common usually is that at least one of us hasn't seen them. And uh, yeah, we let our patrons vote for which older movie we're going to review. And uh, yeah, we we had a tie, and then we had a runoff, and then the runoff was a tie. You, yeah, thank you. You, you monsters. <laughs> you, you really just, you wanted us to review you, per, these, these two films two in particular. Two films, which I gotta be honest here, these are two films that have next to nothing in common with one another, other than they're both films. Like, mm. that's basically it. It's very They were released goofy. eight years apart. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not similar in theme. There's no shared actor between them. No. I mean, they're both in the English language, I guess. But uh, like, I think they're both set in, par- at least partially in England. Some of them a bit. <laughs> except not that much. Uh, it's very weird. Uh, but, um, yeah. So, uh, we're going to do them both. We're going to do both of these Weird, uh, weird ass films, and uh, let's just go in chronological order, shall we? All right, we'll just start with one, then we'll talk about the other, and then we'll see if we can find some way to have this conversation make any sense whatsoever. Uh, you know what? We're critics. Well, yes, we, we we look for uh, themes and common material. We mm-hmm. try to recognize trends. Mm-hmm. Let's think of this as like uh, some sort of intellectual challenge, yeah, a critical but, challenge. But that doesn't. How- mean- I, I that doesn't necessarily mean it's a valuable challenge. I like, had a, you're going to develop a, a critical challenge. You're going to find some kind of connection between a toothbrush <laughs> and a mashed potato sculpture. And a mashed potato sculpture. Mm. Now, other than mashed potatoes might make your teeth you would, dirty. You, would you eat would, mashed potatoes with your mouth and you put a toothbrush in your mouth. But you're not going to both... eat a mashed potato sculpture. That's art. So you can't uh, do that. Oh, uh, but it's delicious art. You wouldn't want those potatoes to go away. My point is, this is going to be really forced, yeah. but we're just going to yeah, do it uh, anyway. <laughs> I, I had a theory once a long time ago uh, that yeah. that I've I've since debunked for myself, but I noticed that when I watched any two films back to back, they would sort of bleed into each other in some sort of way. They they inform yeah. the experience exactly. Yeah. Um, I remember the day I saw um, the films Up and Drag Me to Hell in the same okay. day, and you'll notice that these are both about. The experience of what uh, what you do when you deny an old person their dreams. Okay, that's so there, there's, yeah, there's that, a little, that, that little bit of a them- thematic link between those that two works. characters. That don't, works. don't don't piss off old people. That's that's the theme the, of those. They two take movies. very different approaches to that mm. material, but yes, there is mm. indeed a common link between. So them. Uh, yeah. I I haven't been able to really think of one for the Lost City of Zed and Inkheart, our yep. two films in question. But uh, well, let's let's see what we can do, and let's let's take them both individually, and then we'll worry about that later. Let's talk first about the first film you wanted us to review for some reason, uh, Ian Softley's Inkheart. Okay, so Inkheart is one of many, many, many uh, failed attempts to build a YA franchise in the wake yeah. of Harry Potter. Harry Potter was so successful. I'm surprised actually that like, maybe apart from Percy Jackson, mm-hmm. none of these things really sort of got a, a, a toehold in the popular consciousness. That's not entirely the, true. The Hunger Games. Way. Oh, that's true. The Hunger Games. Hunger Games did well. And initially, I feel like this is one of those things where, um, Nowadays, we don't see them as being terribly connected, but I think initially the idea is that they were. It's like when um, nowadays we see Seinfeld and Friends as kind of two different institutions. Yeah. But when Friends came out, it was seen as just another Seinfeld ripoff. 
Like that was how most people mm. disregard it. Oh, it's another Seinfeld ripoff. Mm. The cast is pretty good, but it probably won't last. And then as it went on, we realized it kind of was its own thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Twilight was part of the early YA boom. It probably oh, wouldn't definitely. have had the push that it had if, if books for sort of adolescent and teen audiences, which had sort of a fantastical bent, whether it be actual magic or science fiction, uh, and used those trappings to convey some sort of narrative about growing up. Yeah. Oh, there's they, they probably, if those weren't successful, we probably wouldn't have had Twilight the way we yeah. had Twilight. I, I feel like there's uh, there were like a couple different approaches uh, because these are young readers. These are intended for younger readers, so they're trying to speak to a young reader's concerns. Harry Potter uh, fulfills this fantasy that uh, mm. if you live sort of a drab life, because what's the premise of Harry Potter? He's, he's, he's living he's, in an abusive household. Yeah, he lives in an abusive household. He's forced to live in this like passageway under the stairs. He doesn't even have his own room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, his, his aunt and uncle, his parents are dead and his aunt and uncle mm. are horrible to him and his, his cousin is horrible to him. Yeah, but it turns out that's uh, fundamentally unjust. He was indeed he was like a, fated to have yeah, better this, things happen to he, him. He's, he's sort secretly of this, rich. This, and, yeah, this yeah. chosen one where it turns out not only is he uh, destined to leave that place, but he's destined to become a magical being and mm. uh, somebody who has a lot of power uh, secretly, but he has a lot of power, he has a lot of wealth that his parents left him, and he gets to move into this magical world where he's like famous and respected. Mm-hmm. Uh you follow that arc to its end. It turns out that he was being groomed to commit murder of an adult, yeah. which is a little bit strange. Yeah, uh, it's not. It's uh, not. It's not as good as we maybe thought. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I I haven't read the book, so I don't know how it like organically it's not as, grows. Yeah, I've only seen the movies. Your perspective comes from the movies and mm. the movies. And and listen, I'm not defending J.K. Rowling here, but like, and there because there's a lot of shit in those books that we really mm. didn't confront very well at the time the handling of goblins the, mm. a lot of that shit is just not great but um there was more in the books I, there yeah, was I a little more nuance I, I feel comfortable <laughs> saying that there was a little less plot intensive there was a lot more digressions a lot more right, world building a lot more a lot more incidental detail and it didn't feel like the entire point was to get harry to murder somebody at the end which like it didn't feel like that was the, the point the movie those last four movies uh the, yeah. the words harry potter in the title yeah all felt like just we're gearing up for the battle like yeah, that's all we're just preparing all that matters you for this is that eventually and, he's and gonna you're, kill and you're gonna have to kill this guy it's like well i don't want to murder a guy I, uh, I, so there was yeah there's the harry potter thing where they're like the chosen one that's also percy jackson Sure. He lives a bad life. It turns out he is descended from Poseidon. He's like mm-hmm. a demigod, and he gets to go to demigod school. It's very much like Harry Potter. Well, he goes to demigod mm-hmm. summer camp, technically, so it's totally oh, different. Oh, excuse me. It's totally <laughs> different. Totally different. Percy Jackson. Percy Jackson is like a shameless Harry Potter yeah. knockoff. But there's also the uh, the sort of uh, like fifth wave Hunger Games uh, side of it, where... It's kind of uh, dystopian. Yeah, where as a young person, you are oppressed. And in order to, and this, I think, skews like a little bit toward an older audience, like maybe Mm. an adolescent audience. As an adolescent, you are oppressed by this adult society and your way out is to essentially militarize your own youth. Yeah. Gather up with the other young fighters and take on the system. Yeah. That's Uh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games is about forcing children to Uh, basically fight each other to the death for mm. any opportunities they get as an adult. We can all sympathize with that. Divergent was about you're all being forced to conform in one way or another. And if you have a more complicated mind than that, then there's no place for you or you can rebel and start a war. Um, There's a ton of those. Mm. Um, Inkheart isn't really either of those things though. The curious thing about Inkheart is that it's not about the youth protagonist. Uh, it all of the drama belongs to her father. At least in the movie, maybe mm. in the book, the perspective is a little different. And, although, mm. to be perfectly frank, that's actually one of the issues I have with the film is that I think it's too much about the dad. But Inkheart is tells a story of it's the real world as we know it. But within this real world, there is a secret group of people called Silver Tongues. Why they're not called Inkhearts, I don't know. Wouldn't that be easier? But they're called Silver Tongues. And the Mm. idea is this. When they read a book aloud, they can summon things from the book into being. And and you can understand where this premise is coming from. This sure. is, uh, th- this is uh, a great it, sort of wish fulfillment kind of fantasy. Yeah, it's based on a book by an author named Cornelia Funke, and um, she uh, has, has a very long and prolific career writing young adult fiction. And... Um, Clearly, she's somebody who reads to a child. Yeah. That's a parent's fantasy. Sure. 
I'm reading this to you and I'm kind of making these things come alive in the mind of my child. And indeed, what this, if there's this a is, fantasy version of that where I make them come alive literally? That, that this has been done multiple times. Mm-hmm. There was an Adam Sandler movie called Bedtime Stories, which is about the exact same mm-hmm. fundamental premise, although it takes a different tack. Uh, that is the premise of the movie Saturday the 14th. The Richard Benjamin spoof of Friday the 13th, if you remember that movie. I don't they, remember it being they, about reading a book aloud. They read a demon book and the demons come out of the book. Well, okay, reading a book and then something comes out of the book is not mm. necessarily the same as I have the power to make anything I read. Yeah. Now, come, like, Evil Dead is about reading a book and shit comes out of the book. That's not the same premise as Incarnate. <laughs> I suppose so. Because uh, that, that's centric to the book. Mm. This is, you have the power to do that with anything you read, mm. which is, which I think excites the imagination a little bit more. It's kind of like Although that it, last action hero thing, like, what character would you pull out of a movie? And your, your mind goes, my, uh, who would I pick? That would be my, interesting. Uh, my issue with this kind of a superpower, and I've seen many of stories where people manifest things out of fiction. Sure. Uh, and my Witch issue Master is... Master 3. That's a, that's a key example. <laughs> the Wishmaster 3 is, is not a very good Wishmaster movie, mm-hmm. but the idea of the Wishmaster movies is genies are real, but every time you make a wish, they're like monkeys pawed and try to kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the idea is always there's one person who has, the first person who releases the genie or the djinn has to make three wishes, and once they make their third wish, the genie is released and It's can, free to run can, the world. Yeah. yeah, and do horrible things. So they're always, but they have to keep making wishes because the genie forces them to. If you don't make a wish, I'll kill your friend, that kind of thing. Um so they're trying to come up with clever wishes. And after the first one, where the, the clever wish involved like going back in time and making it so the genie was never released, and then the next one was about uh, going back in time and changing your own past. Mm. The second one, I actually appreciated because their, their second wish was, okay, uh, I wish for the Archangel Gabriel to come down from heaven and protect me. And, <laughs> and he does. And I'm like... That's neat. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. That was kind of like cool. I, when I was a kid, I thought about that. It's like if, if a genie appears and gives me like one wish, it's like, oh, uh, well, and you can't wish for more wishes. That's cheating. Yeah, that's the cheat. Yeah. So I, I was I was a young kid and I just I had just read the Infinity Gauntlet. The, the, the Infinity Gauntlet. It's like, just give me one of those and, and give me the yeah. power. Like, I know how to use it. And yeah. now I can just make my own wishes. Yeah. Just wear that thing cheat. on my hand and have magic powers. You, oh, oh, three wishes isn't... You, you had no wishes before the genie showed up, and now you're immediately thinking to yourself, how can I hoard this? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. can't just enjoy having three wishes. You have to, like... Oh, no, no, no. That's no, capitalism no. for I've, you. I've, I've already thought ahead of this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, my issue with the manifesting fictional characters yeah. is... Characters go through arcs in stories and in movies, typically. Yeah. They, they're they're, at they're a designed. They're at a different place at the end of the story than they are at the beginning. Uh, in yeah. some cases, they age and they die. Yeah. Uh, if I were to manifest Anna Karenina, yeah. would I manifest would get, a get... dead person <laughs> under a train? Well, it depends on what or, page you read, I guess. Yeah, so... <laughs> Like, I've seen that before. I'm going to manifest Alice. Well, where in her journey? Like, did she go through all of that already and has come out on the other side? Or is she in the middle of her her adventures? I I think it depends on where you read, doesn't Mm. it? I think it would have to. Like, that's... Because here's the thing with Inkart, and you're you're, you're touching upon it right now. Uh, Very loosey-goosey about the rules of this. So what happens Mm. in the story is Brendan Fraser, and this is all kind of kept from us for a little while, but it's pretty clear. Uh, Brendan Fraser, when when, uh, his daughter was young... He read a story out loud. Called, the story is called Inkart. Yeah, Inkart is this fictional book it's within a, the a movie. It's a pirate adventure story. Yeah, kind of, with some, with some mystical elements to it. And um, uh, he reads this book, it's his fantasy book, uh, without realizing what his powers were. And uh, he ends up removing villains from the book. But once you, when you bring something out of a book, you also send something back in. Mm. It's not necessarily the same amount because he pulled more guys out of the book than they brought in. But what happens is he, the, his, the book essentially like requires a, a sacrifice. Well, you need it's, something to, to replace what you what you took. Oh, out. you know what? This book, like uh, mm-hmm. that particular book, was a book from the antique shop from Friday the Thirteenth, the series. Oh, that's so it's cursed. It's a cursed book, and it it's requires really a sacrifice. Anyway, so the idea is he pulls villains out of the book. Mm. One of them was played by Andy Serkis. Yeah, he's like the main villain. And uh, But the book takes with it his wife. And so he, the book is destroyed in the scuffle. And he has been looking for a copy of this book for many years so that he can read his wife out of the novel. A couple of things with that. Uh, one, is she in every copy of the book? Or is she only in the one that he read? He's in- if so, if someone is reading the book... 
are the villains missing? And all of a sudden, there's this woman there going, why am I here? What's yeah, going that, on? That Who is been, everybody? That would have been an interesting thing yeah. if, if the book had been rewritten yeah. to fit that character. And I think they do sort of say that because... Do they? Uh, that, that the character... The people who are read into the book don't become like a major part of the story, but they're mentioned and they're like a supporting character now. I don't recall them because that at all. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, and this might be a, a bit of a spoiler. But uh, he does end up finding the wife, mm-hmm. and we learn that she has actually been manifested back out of the book again. Mm-hmm. But now she's by another guy. By yeah. another guy. But now it turns out she's like a scullery maid. Like she's a, a now a part of the fictional world. I don't think that's the case. I think they just made her the because the idea is this. Uh, he's been looking around for this book for many years. His daughter, who was just who was but an infant, is now a teenager. Uh, he works as uh, someone who repairs rare books, like rebinds them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's constantly going from bookstore to bookstore looking for another copy of Inkheart, which raises the question: It's the 21st century. Why is it so fucking hard to find a copy of Inkheart? Surely That's... it's available online somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily. Well, Some books are hard to find. Which is true. And they do, to their credit, it takes them too long to do this. They really should have done it sooner. They do explain it had a very limited print run. And mm-hmm. the guy who they pulled out of Inkart has been collecting copies and destroying them so that he can't be sent back because he prefers the real world. Hmm. Fine. A little iffy, but fine. At least he covered it. The, the, they, At least they covered there's it. There's dialogue to that effect. However believable it is, they addressed it. At least they addressed it because he really needed to cover that plot point because that was pretty thin. Um, at the beginning of the movie, he finds a copy of the book. Uh, one of the characters he pulled out of Inkheart, uh, played by Paul Bettany, looking dash sexy. Oh, oh God. He, he is, this is like his shirtless stud role. Yeah, he's, uh, he, he plays, plays the character Dustfinger. Dustfinger, who is a shirtless, floppy-haired fire spinner. Yeah, he, he like juggles like, fire and breathes fire like a, like a, like a carnival. He's like the guy you know would be a little dangerous to make out with at yeah. Burning Man. Like, because like, he's an actual Burning Man. Yeah, he's, uh, oh, stop doing that. Sorry, but the uh, here's here's the damn thing though. It's one of those characters where um, two thirds of the way through the movie, someone mentions that he's got like you know a bunch of scars on his face, and I'm like, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. They don't. If they did, it's so fucking subtle. Yeah. Like, I hate it when people, like, they write a character in a story, and the whole idea is that their face has been scarred or in somehow somehow marred or whatever. Disfigured in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And that usually informs the plot in some way. For example, The Phantom of the Opera. The reason the Phantom of the Opera isn't walking around and being a successful opera composer is because of his face, which is he has to cover. He's, uh, which is he has self-conscious to self-conscious about it. He feels like he has to cover. Well, it, be- yeah. and and indeed, if you look at the original silent film hmm. uh, with Lon Chaney Sr., uh, the shot everyone remembers from it his, uh, is his unmasking scene. Yeah, yeah. It's, she walks up behind him slowly as he's playing a piano. She pulls it off, and indeed, he looks very skeletal and weird. And, like, even if you say to yourself, well, I would befriend him, I wouldn't be an asshole, you get why he feels mm-hmm. the need to cover that, and that justifies his existence. And then you look at something like, say, the Joel Schumacher Phantom of the Opera, where the Phantom <laughs> is played by Gerard <laughs> Butler, and when he oh. takes off a mask, and it isn't even a full mask in that version, it's mm-hmm. that, like, it's Broadway like the, the left quarter side, mask. Left, left half of your mask. Yeah. If you pull off that mask... Uh, you expect that to be like, you know, like, oh, maybe you can see like down to the like bone or something like the like, tissue face. Yeah. And and instead it's like he's a little puffy. That's it. Like he's got all f- like three zits. It's like, like he's a little it, puffy yeah. right there. And you're just sort of like, oh, we can probably get some ointment for that. Or like, or, remember, or, uh, the, uh, or you could just wear that tiny little mask and walk around and be and the sexiest man in London. And people mm. would say, why do you wear that mask? And he'd say, I'm a little puffy here. And mm. they would go, oh, would you like to marry my daughter? Like that's, <laughs> there's no justification. It makes no sense. So this whole idea well, a, that he's, he's horribly scarred and informs his character makes no sense if he is unbelievably conventionally attractive and you can't tell that he's scarred. Played by a young Gerard Butler. So he'd say it with a Scottish brogue. I'm a little puffy under here. Well, I was talking about Um, Paul Bettany at this point, but yes, still. uh, But I I remember the same uh, shtick with... um, and I always remember the name because the monster says it over and over again in Mortal Engines. Hester Shaw. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hester Shaw, the char- the main character from Mortal Engines. Very underrated uh, YA film, I feel. Uh, it's okay. It's, it's imaginative. There's a lot ima- of really cool shit. In that. The, the opening it's totally se- worth seeing. The opening sequence where two cities are rolling across the landscape, in firing a car each chase? other, and like yeah. this, it's like a city car chase. That's really imaginative. There's some cool uh, shit. In that. I think it's worth seeing. Some of the visuals are really great. Uh, and and yeah, there's a. Uh, uh, 
robot Frankenstein villain who's great like villain. stalking the, the main character. Really great villain, clever motivation, mm. well played by Stephen Lang and like CGI mm. animators. Mm. Neat character. <laughs> There's so much I love about that movie. Yeah. It's not a great movie, but it's so much I love about it. If it was just that guy, it would be great. Yeah. Hester Shaw. And yeah. Hester has also been scarred. Yeah. And uh, in, the mo- in the book, in, apparently, it's a lot. It's and like, in the movie, yeah, the, it's, in the book like, it's like, like the bottom half of her face is yeah. practically missing. And uh, But yeah, in the, in the movie, she's got like a little scar like a cool, her lip. Like a like, cool scar. Yeah. It's like yeah. Oh, another great example of this is the movie Beastly with Alex Pettifer. <laughs> yes, of course. Okay, so there was this moment where everyone thought Alex Pettifer would be a thing. Uh, it didn't last, but he was in like a bunch of like he was in that movie, uh, uh, the host, another YA film, and mm. uh, he was in uh, In Time. Oh, I saw uh, yeah. I Am Number Four, another YA. There you film. go. I, get, I think he wasn't he in uh, that uh, Operation Storm Rider or something like that. Oh, Alex, what was that one, Alex? Alex Rider Stormbreaker, something like that. Yeah, he was in a bunch. R- ride Alex Breakwind, like a shocking number of YA movies, and. Um, Beastly was basically, hey, we're going to take Beauty and the Beast and we're going to update it to modern times. Okay, we did that with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman, but fine. Okay, we'll, it's we'll been a while. We'll do it again. I was we'll like, do it again. Like 20 years apart. That's we'll fun. do it again. Yeah. It's fun. Just one of, it, that was a huge TV show and no one talks about it anymore. Uh, but uh, so it's like, okay, so you're this beautiful hunk of a man and you're a total asshole and then a witch curses you. Uh, to look like a monster so that no one will like you. Okay, I understand the basic premise. Uh, you made him look cooler. He's got piercings and, and tats like, and, and yeah. like and like his like and he's scarred, but it looks like on purpose, like he was beautifully scarred. Like <laughs> like this is actually like super yeah, he, intentional he, he to make him look even nicer. He doesn't look any beastly at all. No, he looks he looks sexier. Like I so don't... The, the, this is this is Paul Bettany in Inkheart as well yeah. as as was his name Ashfinger Dustfinger Dustfinger and yeah. uh, Dustfinger. Yeah, has a different motivation from the Andy Circus villain. Yeah, uh, Andy Circus wants to stay in the real world. Yeah, Dustfinger uh, wants to go back. He wants to go back because uh, he's missing uh, his his beloved. Yeah, he has a, a wife had, in the book. He had a he had a rom- he had a romance subplot, mm. <laughs> and, he and, and, it was, and it was interrupted. And, and so. now he's stuck here, and that sucks. And yeah, okay, uh, fair enough. And uh, as uh, as uh, Brendan Fraser is looking for the book, he ends up running afoul of the actual villains from the book, and they and they yeah. all have like exaggerated Dick Tracy features, like gigantic yeah. chins and noses and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because they know he has this power, he spoke them into being, they want him to uh, essentially shut the book on them and also manifest things out of books for his own use. Yeah, the idea is that Andy Serkis has... Uh, the. He doesn't want to rule the world. He seems content to just be really, really rich. Mm-hmm. Like, which you'd think after a while he'd just be fine and just let it go. But like, he has got another uh, silver tongue, with not another guy who's unimportant. Uh, who has been reading stuff out of books, and he'd read stuff out of books like um, The Treasure from Treasure Island or something yeah. like that. And yeah, we have a, a chest of gold. Oh, uh, cool. It. Or like, oh, here, and, and there's a cute bit at the beginning where uh, they go to the stables where they've pulled up a bunch of magical creatures like a unicorn, and oh, here's Cujo. Yeah. And I'm like, he's got rabies. Put him away from the other animals. What are you doing? <laughs> He's got rabies. Uh, also, he's so, also in the book. He's possessed by the serial killer from the Dead Zone. So oh, he's really? gonna, yes. Oh my god! I the book read is the book. insane. In, in the, the movie is just a dog. And the movie is just a rabbit dog. It's a dog, the movie dog is highly. I, I forget. And, you know. it's, 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 it's highly implied he's possessed by the hey, serial killer from the dead zone. You know what? I'm. I'm. The longer I live, the more I realize that Stephen King sucks. Like Stephen he has King, such bad ideas. Has, I think he has good ideas, but sometimes the actual implementation is really, really bizarre. Like, I think Cujo was one of the movies he said because he's he, Stephen King, much like many of the author characters in his books, has uh, had wrestled with a subject substance abuse problem. Yeah, he's, he's, Stephen King's spoken very frankly, very frankly about, about, this, about it. Yeah. And uh, uh, I believe Cujo is a book that he says he doesn't remember writing. Oh, just because he was so... He was so high. He, he was, or or he, drunk. One of the other. I forget he, one of the other. I, I think uh, booze and cocaine were his, yeah. his, his two... Uh, his two I, I, I can't speak to that specifically, um, but he's, he said in interviews he doesn't remember writing Cujo. Yeah. I, I, yeah. What, was it... No, it wasn't Stephen King. Somebody asked, like, what, what would you say about this piece of art you made? And, and his only response was, cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Cujo uh, is also one of the Stephen King movies where he says the ending of the movie is better than the ending of the book. I think it's that in the mist. Well, he likes the ending of the both. He likes the ending of the movies he, he, better he than the no, ending of the book. Notoriously dislikes the movie versions of his books. Yeah. So uh, every once in a while, if he likes it, it says a lot about the movie. Probably yeah, that. Oh, oh, he doesn't like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Well, there's a reason uh, for that. Yeah, he has bad taste. That's no, the reason. I think, well, I think the reason is because Stephen King, I think, sees him. 
I think Stephen King sees himself a bit in Jack Torrance. Yeah, and like Jack Torrance is in, a little bit more of a maniac. In yeah, in the, in the book, it's a bit more of a tragedy about him. And in the movie, he's more of like the Minotaur in a maze is an absolute monster. Mm. And I don't think he appreciates that. That's that, that's. I think fair. that's why. The um, focus is different. Yeah. Uh, the premise of Inkheart is rife with possibility. You say they yeah. went down to the stables and Cujo was there and they're reading yeah. all of these ma- mystical animals out of yeah. out of books. There's one of the books they have with them all the time is The Wizard of Oz and mm. so to escape from mm. uh, Andy Serkis who plays Capricorn and I kept thinking of uh, uh, Life of Brian where uh, the three kings go to <laughs> go to see What's is he? Capricorn. Capricorn. Well, what are they like? Well, he's, he's the king the... of the Jews and that's Capricorn. Is it? Like, no, it's no, 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 that's just him. him. <laughs> I was about to say there'd be an awful lot of them. Um, now, uh, there's uh, uh, in order to escape he actually pulls the tornado mm-hmm. out of The Wizard of Oz and I'm like that's cool. It's, that's kind of neat. I, I can see the possibilities cool. here. You, and you can fun. see the possibility. And yeah. I think there's a flying monkey out of the Wizard of Oz. There is a flying monkey. It looks like the one in the movie, they, but they, whatever. They um, clearly had the rights to the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. yeah. Clearly, uh, that was one of the major so, books they could use. Uh, Brendan Fraser has to team up with, I think it's his aunt. Uh, it's his aunt, played by Helen, played by Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren. Uh, who, who collects is, old rare books. And yeah. she's... when the Barely the, has a reason to be in this film. No, but when the bad guys break in and she just says, like... Essentially, just says "fuck you" and starts beating him with an umbrella. That, that's a good scene, uh, I guess. But like, she literally has nothing to do with the film. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like she's not here for any y- reason. You would think that uh, Brendan Fraser, his daughter, and his aunt. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they eventually team up with Jim Broadbent, who plays the author of the book. Which is which is uh, also a yeah. fun idea. Mm-hmm. Which, when you think about it, like, it, yeah. oh my god, what if all of my creations came to life? How interesting that would and, be. And, and he actually fantasizes yeah. about being read into the book. You would like to be. Mm. That sounds I, fun I created him. this. This was fun. Yeah, I want to live yeah. in my own imagination. Yeah. Uh, you would think that with this ability to pull characters out of books, uh-huh. that they would enlist, they would get like the novelization of RoboCop. And they'd... <laughs> <laughs> yes! And yeah, and they'd yes! Get... <laughs> exactly! And Go nuts! Get... And they get, you know, all, all these, like, historic heroes, they'd read, like, a Tarzan book. They do read Aladdin from the Thousand and One Nights. They do. They read Aladdin and, now, And yeah. he's just, like, sort of hanging out in the background. Not really helping. I guess they got him from the beginning of the story before he learned anything. You, hmm. you, would it have killed you to release the genie? <laughs> Seriously. Maybe the genie would have been more useful. It's like, ha, 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 I, ha, I can read treasure. Yeah, fuck you, I got Cthulhu. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's, there's so many There's things. nothing preventing him from doing this. And also, it, it, also a theoretically, lot of something gets sucked in. And but, there's so many yeah. wonderful adventure novels that are just in the public domain. Right. You could read out Dra- uh, Dracula or Frankenstein's uh, monster and get uh, all these the, things on your side. What was the name of the Princess of Mars from John Carter? Um, Deja Thoris. Deja, read up Deja Thoris. Deja mm. Thoris is a badass. And basically, you're the barbarian. All these pulp heroes. Comic uh, books. Yeah, get Spider Man out. Does there. it work with comic books? I well, they're illustrated books that they have. Surely, uh, illustrations. Not, so. I don't think the illustrations ruin it. The, I, I think it's implied that it has to be from text, like it's words that okay, it comes Okay, well, there's still Spider-Man books. You can still get them. There you go. Like, you know, like, bring out Spider-Man. Who cares? The like, point is, he they had every opportunity and no excuse not to yeah. assemble great characters from literature uh-huh. and put, pit them against each other in an interesting way. Yeah. Like, some and of them are clever, some of them are bruisers. You it's, know, it's, it's got last-action hero syndrome. We're like, yeah, okay, so like we have like the ability to... We have the possibility... We have the potential to pull any move... What was the studio behind last-action hero? Was it, like, Universal or... I thought there was a Touchstone film. Might have yeah, been a Touchstone film. Whatever, like, any... Even if you just limit it to the output of, like, one... Like motion picture studio, still tons of possibilities. Yeah, tons of things you could do. And so the whole idea of last action hero is okay. This kid manages to shunt himself into, the, you know, a fake a, a, an Schwartz, film, a, yeah. a fake Schwarzeneggerian action franchise. Fine. Uh, he's never called Schwarzenegger, but that's the implication. No, he's called Schwarzenegger. Oh, he is in okay. the real world. He's not Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he, he sees a Schwarzenegger movie. And, it's called uh, Jack Slater. That's his, that's his yeah, like... It's, it's a fake movie, but it's... kind of like Cobra or But he goes those, inside, yeah. and when he meets Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's playing Jack Slater, so he is Jack Slater. Yeah, that's the character. And then he comes out into the real world, and there's a bit where he goes to the premiere of the new Jack Slater movie, and Schwarzenegger is there, and there's kind of like a moment. That's kind of fun. But the idea is he can pull any character out of a movie, and so can the villain. The villain gets this power. The bad guy from this Jack Slater movie realizes what's happening, and the whole thing is, oh my god. 
I look at all of these movies that are playing in Los Angeles right now. Tons of revival theaters, and I, I think there's like a scene where like you see in the newspaper there's Dracula is playing and Godzilla is playing, and like oh my god, can you imagine like Godzilla, Godzilla and, Dracula, and yeah. Dracula versus? Oh, here's here's what you do: you get Dracula and you get Godzilla and you ask Dracula to, to bite, bite Godzilla, Godzilla. <laughs> yes, or ask Godzilla to bite Dracula, and then you've got a giant Dracula and he's oh, going both, around. They, they do it. Yeah. They cross. So there, there's like, vampire Godzilla and. Yeah. Giant Dracula. Done. My point is this. Why uh, didn't they do that? My point is, yeah, exactly. Your, <laughs> your, your, your imagination is like on overload. Oh my God, anything is possible here. And then what do they do? They pull out the villain from the fake Jack Slater movie we saw for one scene at the beginning. I know he's played by Tom Noonan. I love Tom Noonan. Uh, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what, a, what a huge oh. waste. This used to happen. They All did. the time with like fan service type shit where they give you this big promise and then for whatever reason they'd only give cut to the cool stuff at the end. Like mm. like uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Oh yeah, they can only do the, f- the fight like a, yeah. for one scene. Frankenstein like, fights right the Wolfman the in one scene and it's right at the fucking end. And it is such a ripoff. I'm sorry, I actually like most of that movie. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Lon Chaney oh, Jr. Really is doing fun, great. Yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. is doing a great job acting in that movie. And originally the idea was he was going to play both but that was just a logistical nightmare. Um... But actually, actually, I think that's the one movie where Bela Lugosi plays Frankenstein. Yes, and it's also well, he, plays, he plays uh, he plays Frankenstein Igor. He plays he played, into, uh, okay. So Igor was okay. We're getting into the weeds here, but real, real fast. If you actually follow the chronology of the original Universal Frankenstein movies, which are all pretty good, actually, the, the original lab movie. assistant was Fritz. It wasn't yeah. Igor, uh, and then Igor came along in the third film, Son of Frankenstein, when Basil Rathbone came along and was the new Doctor Frankenstein, and that's what most of the movie Young Frankenstein is based on. Igor was played by Bela Lugosi, and Bela Lugosi's whole plan, because he also had, you know, he was a hunchback and he wasn't very happy with himself, and people hated him, and it's kind of a villain. Um, he wanted to have his brain put inside the monster, which I believe he does in the movie Ghost of Frankenstein. However, in the process, so after like the first couple of Frankenstein movies, it's actually Igor and Frankenstein's body. Mm. And the original idea was that the monster was going to be able to talk, which they kind of forgot that he already knew how to do in Bride of Frankenstein. They just sort of reset that. And also at some point, the Frankenstein like had injured his eyes. So Bela Lugosi was like feeling around with his hands because the idea was the character was blind. Mm. And then they ended up cutting that part out of the movie. So he just sort of walked weird. And so now whenever like you see someone playing Frankenstein and their hands are like way out in front of them like that, it's they're they're playing it like that's the way the character is supposed to be. It's only that one film. <laughs> that was it's, only that one it's film. It's that film. Uh, we get Igor and that stiff arm thing from yeah. that film, the big the like electrodes in the neck. Yeah. Like, the big bolts in the neck is from that film. In, no, that was in the original, too. No, in, 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 if you look closely in James Whale's films, there there's, like, little electrodes. There's, like, little stems. Yeah. But they didn't have, like, the big lug nuts on them. Oh, okay. That's what yeah. you mean. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Anyway, we're off. What the fuck were we talking about? We're talking about how, how Inkheart wasted an opportunity in not yeah. resurrecting every yeah. every possible fictional character they could. And instead, they just, they just, pull, they just pull, like, a meaner bad guy out of Inkheart. And I'm like... I get that we're adhering to the book. Um, that's no fucking excuse. Adapt it. <laughs> Go nuts. Have mm. fun. Because there's there's stuff I kind of like about this movie. I Brendan Fraser is always a, dash, a dashing mm. leading man. He's good casting here. Um, I'm not entirely sure how his daughter turned out quite so British, considering that he's raising her alone. Uh, she's played by in, Eliza in America, Bennett, who would go on to co-star in Sweet Vicious, which is one of the best shows we've ever that, covered on Cancel Too Soon. That's a really good show. Amazing program. And honestly, that first season is actually pretty satisfying in and of itself. Hmm. Like, it doesn't like end on like, a huge it's, cliffhanger. It nothing starts gets bad. Like, the first few episodes are actually takes not a, good at all. It but... takes a minute to find its footing, but once it does, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So definitely we're checking out Sweet Vicious. Um, Brendan Fraser's good. Eliza Bennett's pretty good. Andy Serkis is nothing, but he has nothing to work with. Paul Bettany understands that he's playing a character some tragedy. I actually really like... He gives the character a lot of pathos. I I like that the character is written as selfish. That's the idea. He was created as a selfish character, and so he behaves very selfishly in a way that sometimes seems illogical. But it's... But in his DNA, he's stuck with it. It's his tragedy. And there's Mm -hmm. there's a cool bit... Where um, uh, Jim Broadbent gets to meet this character. And he doesn't want to meet his creator. He's like, why would I want this? This is weird. I don't want to. And, he's, and he says, he, he 
he tells him how his, his story arc ended. And he said, you actually sacrificed yourself to save your pet. And he was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, no, well, it's supposed to be like you, you learned I... a valuable lesson about selflessness and why you shouldn't always just look out for yourself. It's actually a great ending. And if I do say so myself. And um, I like Paul Bettany's response, which is, I am not stuck in a fucking book. I can do whatever I want with my life. Hmm. And he actually, actually goes grown on, and changed a little bit. And, and indeed, he does... He takes his own story. He he learns some valuable lessons, but he goes in a different direction with it. I thought that was pretty good. Mm. I kind of like that. That's nicely handled. But, um, yeah, it's kind of a waste of a good premise. And, um... And it yeah. kind of peters out. Like, it, it's, yeah. it's not energetic or fun or creative in a way these sorts of films ought to be. It should feel yeah. like like a, a raucous adventure, right? It, it, this, this feels like, and I, I realize I'm partially saying this because Brendan Fraser's in it. I feel like Stephen Summers could have nailed this. So who directed uh, Brendan Fraser in, in The Mummy? In The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. I feel like when you look at what Brent, what uh, Stephen Summers did mm-hmm. at his best, he's not every movie he's done is good, but... He's a, a bit of a slapdash director, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think uh, his G.I. Joe movie's pretty terrible, actually. But, um... When you look at something like like a movie I like a lot more than you, mm. uh, Van Helsing, for example. A, a attractive cast. Very attractive Dumb cast. Dumb as a bag of hammers. Dumb movie. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend it's a, cl- it's a smart film. But he understood that the premise of that movie is we're getting all of these monsters together and we're going to have fun with them. Mm. And we're going to do a bunch of cool shit. We're going to take all the shit... That most other like fan servicey type movies didn't bother to do, and we're gonna go absolutely hog wild, and we're gonna do all of them. It's gonna end in like a giant fight between the Wolfman and Dracula, like really fucking wild fight between the Wolfman and Dracula. We're gonna ben do Helsing's all these. He's gonna do like a Spider-Man cable thing, where he's swinging yeah. over castles. Like he's and gonna stuff he's gonna and... make the most of every opportunity. Everything's gonna be as imaginative as you could want. And you do not want to present your audience with a premise. And then have the, the audience have the audience outthink you. Yeah, and, and and I mean like in minutes, not like I've been I've been prepping for this movie my whole life. Like mm. you introduced to me the idea of the movie Inkard. I've come up with more interesting ideas than this movie comes up with in five minutes. That's a bummer. Uh, I can see what some people like it. It's certainly you know it's got a bit of energy to it. The cast is pretty good, but mm. not in love with this one. Not in love with this one. Uh, which uh, brings us to our second film. Uh, I have no transition because they don't connect in any way. This is The Lost the, City the, of Zed. The, uh, the the connective tissue that I tried to come up with was that these are both films about seeking fantasies. Like legendary places. Um, I guess... Kind of. But one of them is inherently one of them is inherently fictional and are making it real. Well, the other one is allegedly real, but everyone treats it as fiction. Mm. And I wish that there was some real dramatic symmetry there, but it's really not. I think we're just kind of the idea of the Lost City of Zed is that it's a biographical film about a British uh, explorer and soldier named Percy Fawcett, who in the early days of the 20th century. Uh, led a series of expeditions into Bolivia, which at the time hadn't really been mapped very well. It's a lot of jungle, isn't it? Mm. And indeed, the border between Bolivia and Brazil was under it was, dispute. It was contested, and uh, yeah. and he was hired to settle the dispute. Yeah, the idea is that Brazil and Bolivia wouldn't agree to each other's maps because basically the, they, the land was really valuable a, because of the rubber trade. That's right. Yeah, uh, the, that, That's what was at stake here, was yeah. that the rubber uh, was... Was too valuable to get yeah. up. So uh, Britain was brought in, or at least the uh, British Geographical Society uh, was brought in to be an uh, objective arbitrator and just send someone in with experience in making maps, which uh, Percy Fawcett did. And uh, basically, you do it. And then we'll just trust whatever you say. Because if there's one thing we know for certain, it's that the British uh, don't have any vested interest in... Uh, uh, Financial stuff oh, golly, outside their no. shores. Yeah, surely <laughs> the, the, they won't. Look, the British, they've, they've never gone to other countries. They've yes. never stuck flags in other countries. They've never taken the property of other countries. Oh, goodness, no. No. The movie never goes into any of that. D- John Oliver described the British Museum as an active crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, but anyway, so the idea is uh, Percy Fawcett is played by Charlie Hunnam, uh, probably mm. best known from Pacific Rim or... Um, what, what, uh, what else did I see? Him he was in, in The Gentleman, the uh, uh, Guy Ritchie movie. He was pretty good in that. 
Oh, yeah, that was an okay one. Charlie Hunnam is actually, a, a, I think, a really good actor who is one of those guys who's just, like, so distractingly hunky that yeah, he, he doesn't he tend has, to get really good roles. Because he has that sort of matinee idol good looks, yeah. uh, you kind of are distracted from the f- his talent. And indeed, this also uh, happened to one of his co-stars, uh, Robert Pattinson. Mm. Robert Pattinson plays a man named Henry Costin, uh, who accompanied oh, he, he him was, on his exp- um, on his uh, uh, journeys multiple times. He was uh, King Arthur. That's where I saw him. Charlie Hunnam was the King Arthur and Guy Ritchie's King Arthur. That's yeah. correct. Uh, Robert Pattinson, who at the time was also was actively looking to sort of shed his matinee idol image, mm. uh, wanted to work with director James Gray, who was a very celebrated filmmaker. Um, so uh, he appears in the film and actually. A- Pretty minor role. I would be surprised if he has more than thirty lines of dialogue. Like he's yeah, really he's, not. He, he's, he's just a super supporting role. Yeah, and he's he's covered in a beard. Like you, you probably recognize him, but you might not if you did, didn't know he was in the movie. Um, and uh, so Charlie Hunnam and Pat Robert Pattinson go adventuring into the jungle, and they complete their task. But at the end of their journey, Charlie Hunnam finds evidence. Well, well and they've completed their task, but they're going a little mad. Yeah, the, the jungle and, is very difficult to survive in. Yep. Uh, they're uh, constantly butting heads with the locals. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's the as, piranhas in the river. Yeah, they're, just, they're, they're having a lot of trouble surviving. They're yeah, barely clinging it's on. It's not easy to so, traverse. And right at the end of their task, while they're just sort mm-hmm. of pra- not like practically lost, they're just mm-hmm. deep in the jungle, uh, they find an artifact. They find evidence of not just a civilization, but a civilization with features that the extremely racist European Explorer Society mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, thinks are completely impossible to find but from any non-white civilization. Uh, stuff like, um, you know, artifices of stone buildings or uh, uh, pottery, for example. Um Things that are, frankly, it's insulting that they assume that no one else could have figured out how to make that. Yeah. The, the, like, it's, it's fundamentally absurd. Uh, but he goes back and he says, okay, yeah, I did it. And everyone's celebrating. I'm like, hey, good job. And it turns out, like, your dad kind of pissed away your family fortune and good name. And now you've redeemed yourself. And you're, here's all the accolades. And please write adventure novels. And everything is great. And Charlie Hunnam's like, yeah, I, I found exib- uh, 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 evidence. Evidence, evidence that uh, the locals in uh, Bolivia... Uh, we're actually w- way more advanced than we thought, and I know that you're super duper racist, but I would like to go in and look for more. And they're like, no, 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 we're way too racist for that. And he's just like, well, could you not be? And they're like, no. And finally, one person. You, you, you don't, don't know about the British, I guess. Yeah. And then one person, played by Angus McFadden, um, who. Ang- Angus McFadden's great. Really way. good yeah. actor. You probably know him from stuff like Braveheart or Titus. Um, he's uh, he played or Warriors uh, of Virtue. He played Orson Welles in that uh, Tim Robbins Rock, movie, yeah. Great Little Rock. Pretty good, actually. Uh, the movie's a little overblown, but he's I, good in it. I love that movie. I, 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 I love how overblown it is. I, I, I think it's like three times. Too much movie in that movie, but uh, look, I, it's still that's, pretty. That's good. the way I feel about uh, about Van Helsing. So that's we're, fair. We're, we're you know what? That's, that's totally fair. <laughs> I deserve that. Uh, so Angus McFadden agrees to go along with him on another journey, and then they go back to Bolivia. And it turns out Angus McFadden is uh, completely ill-equipped for anything. He's like, like yeah, he's a, just a little bit too much of a, a, a city man. Yeah, he he has he, he's. Absolutely helpless in the jungle. He's eating too much of their supplies. He lets himself get injured too easily. He uh, doesn't follow orders very well, and he costs them like a lot of their rations. Mm. And then finally, they're just—they're basically debating whether or not to kill him, <laughs> more or less. Yeah. <laughs> and then instead, uh, uh, Charlie Hunnam's like, um, "All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you supplies. There is a like a mission or something like not that far from here." We're going to send you off on your own because you're literally going to kill all of us. And then they assume he died. <laughs> yeah. They assume he died because he's he's worthless. And uh, when they finally end up going back because it's too damn difficult, they're surprised to find out that he did make it. And he's pissed. And he's threatening to sue them. Which he does. He does. And then World War One breaks out. And there's a, that's a whole fucking thing. <laughs> and then the war came. And then World War One totally... Uh, and let's be honest here. This was rude of World War One. Totally got in the way of Percy Fawcett's exploration of Bolivia. Like totally fucked it up. I, I think the idea is it, it, it interrupted everything. Well, of um, course it did. Uh, what, it was uh, what movie? Oh, I'm thinking of the movie Spotlight. 
uh-huh. uh, where uh, oh yeah yeah the, yeah a big part a big uh, plot point in the movie Spotlight uh, great movie by the way yeah, Spotlight uh, is about the investigation they're, they're, into uh, sex crimes in the Catholic yeah, the, Church so yeah, the, yeah all of these reporters are trying to get all of this evidence and are looking into like yeah. what who knew what at what time it's and, the only thing they're thinking and, about yeah, the so, only thing to do it's the most important news story in the and world then, and then of course this all happened in like 1999 2000 going into 2001 and wouldn't you know it 9-11 happens and then 9-11 kind of interrupts everything it, it, and it becomes caused everything yeah. the investigation for essentially an entire year so that yeah. i think that's the view of world war one and I lost guess. city of zed it's but like it, world it's, war one just kind of interrupted it's so damn world. epic though like that's the thing like it's not yeah. it's not treated as a distraction thing that happened it gets like its whole like set piece uh-huh. And then he goes back again, and it turns out it's very, very sad. And then his son well, look, uh, grows up to be Tom Holland, I, and he resents his dad. And, I didn't know yeah. this about Lost City of Zed. I thought it was just about one quest into the jungle. I thought this was going to be like uh, Werner Herzog. Oh, okay. Like Fitzcarraldo like, or Hero of the Wrath Indeed, God. there's a bit where they stumble into an opera in the middle of the jungle, which I think was a Herzog reference. Uh, definitely it yeah. was, because the, yeah. the premise of the... Uh, uh, Herzog's Fitzcarraldo uh-huh. is this guy. His name is Fitzgerald, but they uh, can't pronounce it locally, so they called him Fitzcarraldo. Uh, wants to build an opera house in the middle of the jungle. That's his yeah. mad dream. But in order to do so, he has to sail down a river, go over to another river, and sail further up into the jungle. Right. And in order to do so, they have to drag a boat over like a, a strip of land, and it's like this yeah. big hill. Yeah. And the movie is literally just the process of dragging a boat over a hill literally almost in real time yeah. uh, they actually had like Herzog actually tried to do that and indeed it, and, it drove everyone mad yeah uh, so yeah it's about going back over and over and over again to try to find evidence of a thing and and uh, yeah he never did in his mm-hmm. lifetime I'm not going to tell you exactly how the movie ends the movie ends kind of vaguely because but we I, actually don't know exactly what happened to I, him in the long run yeah, well and I, I didn't know that this was yeah he was going to come back and it was all about sort of this quest yeah. to prove this thing that was never really proven yeah uh the Lost City of Zed isn't the sort of, like, c- cool name they tried to come up with it. They needed a, a, a code, a name for something. Yeah. But they didn't know what it was, so they just called it Zed, the letter. The end of the alphabet. The end of the alphabet. Yeah, it's like, it's the last thing to find, basically. It's not El Dorado. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing. It's a different thing. Mm-hmm. He's not looking for gold. He's looking for evidence of a former civilization. Um, this movie is very handsomely produced. And the, indeed, the photography is amazing. Photography I is fantastic. Up the cinematographer's name. The photography um, is amazing. It was shot on thirty-five millimeter, and originally it was shot on thirty-five millimeter. I was looking some research. On oh, this. it was it was uh, Darius Kunji. There you uh, go. Who, who worked with Wong Kar Wai and Nicholas Winded Refn and Bong Joon Ho. Brilliant uh, filmmaker. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, wonderful, wonderful cinematographer. Brilliant cinematographer. Um, Darius Kunji. Uh, they they originally filmed it on thirty-five as an aesthetic choice. They wanted it to have that sort of David Lean kind of epic quality, that sort of Apocalypse Now kind of epic quality. Yeah, and this movie came out in... Uh, uh, 2016. 2016. So yeah. th- this was when a lot of uh, productions had already shifted to yeah, digital. Yeah, most movies now are made uh, digitally, uh, even then. Uh, this ended up being a real pain in the ass because they decided to shoot in the actual jungle. And so they had to train someone on how to use a 35 millimeter camera, which no one did. Uh, they had to shove it into cardboard boxes, put it on like a biplane with one of those like landing pontoons on like the water, and then like send that off to a to a uh, airport, send that off to England, and then send the footage back. <laughs> and apparently that that ended up costing the movie an additional seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But it turns out. That's the only way they could have done it because all of their electronics that they brought with them, like their computers and stuff, the humidity fucked them. The humidity just made them <laughs> so all like, useless. So the only way they could make the movie was on 35 was in the film. long run. But like, it's this is just one of those movies where everything was like... There, uh, uh, James Gray told a story where uh, he contacted Francis Ford Coppola, who had made Apocalypse Now in the jungle. And there's a whole documentary called Hearts of Darkness, where or Heart of Darkness, Heart of Darkness, yeah. uh, where uh, it's all about how that production went was incredibly difficult, and everyone kind of lost their minds and way too many drugs, and it was just an absolute mess. It's a miracle a movie came out of it, uh, let alone a good one. And he asked uh, Francois Coppola, "Do you have any advice mm. about uh, filming in the jungle?" And uh, his advice was don't <laughs> don't do it don't go and it turns out that's the exact same advice that Roger Corman gave to Francis Ford Coppola when he did Apocalypse Now oh that's funny <laughs> <laughs> just don't fucking go cause uh Charlie Hunnam got like a dangerous like 
bug crawled into his ear at oh night. Uh, Tom Holland accidentally, uh, who plays Charlie Hunnam's son in the later parts of the film, uh, he accidentally like took a swim with like a whole bunch of like man-eating sharks and shit. Like it was like not not very wow. So apparently, the sharks weren't that not sh- not sharks, uh, alligators, oh. like a species of alligator, which apparently is not as not as violent as some of the other ones, but still probably not a good thing to do. Um, anyway, it was a fucking mess. Hmm. Uh, so it's one of those just big oh my god I can't believe we actually but the fact that the movie exists and is pretty is uh, kind of nothing short of legendary in and of itself um, I wish I liked it more I, I it, it's it it's, kind it's, of me- it's okay it but meanders like, and it peters out at the yeah. end like it, because we don't really know what happened to this guy it's yeah. not like it was able to come to a satisfying conclusion and if it was left off in a little bit more of a deliberately ambiguous way. Like, yeah. uh, if, if, like if you read, um, it's going to be a weird comparison, but The Time Machine, uh, ah, where the, the, okay. time, the time traveler goes forward in time, he has his, his adventures, and he returns to the present. Yeah. And he says, I'm going to pack up, and I'm going to try again. And yeah. he gets in the time machine, and he never comes back. We don't know what happened to him. Yeah. And that's a good ending. Yeah. It's like, back in the present day, it's like, okay, he went in his time machine, and then he just vanished into thin air. And yeah, we well, that's the, it's the ending of uh, Back to the Future Part 3. Do you, we don't know what happens to Doc Brown after that. Presumably yeah. something interesting. But that's yeah, it for but, us. We're good. Yeah, we, we know he's going to go on an adventures. We know he's okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like if it had a little bit more of that, we're just going to, we're going to leave it here and it's going to be mysterious. And everybody's like, wait, what happened? It's because there's, it's, there's it's, like it's a little bit like, of a shock to it. It's then, almost like the way that uh, a little bit better. It's almost like the way that Spielberg ended Lincoln, which is basically just, hmm. uh, you're here, you're, you're, uh, what is it? Your carriage is here to take you to the theater, Mister Lincoln, and then mm. he walks off into there. But we know exactly what happened to Lincoln. Yeah. Here it's like it's just like okay, then we go and go on this expedition, and he waves goodbye, and then if it just said something like, and then he and his son were never seen again, mm. that would probably be. But instead, they try to have their cake and eat it too a little bit. Yeah. They show you some stuff, but it's all speculative. Um, this is another movie where we just talked about uh, another really handsome movie, uh, and critically acclaimed, mm. uh, called The Northman. Yes. The Northman is also a period piece. It's also very handsome. Uh, it's also a movie that tells kind of a big epic kind of story. But it's also a film that I feel like it doesn't really have a distinct perspective on the story it's telling. And I feel like there's something about this. There's a speech at the end of The Lost City of Zed. Hmm. Where uh, Charlie Hunnam and his son, played by Tom Holland, have disappeared. And uh, his wife, played by Sienna Miller... Uh, is trying to get more people interested in searching for him. So we already sent a lot of people to search for him. Did mm. nothing happen? But she still says. But she sends, ends up talking about how, you know, there's a speech she gives in the flashback about how the importance is that your reach exceeds your grasp, because otherwise, what would heaven be? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's yeah, pretty fucking thin. Because what we're dealing with here is a I, lot I, more. Uh, to- it's a lot broader conversation here about stuff like British colonialism. Yeah, I was say, and colo- like, it should be a, a colonial. Colonialist story. The idea of telling the story and trying to make it seem like, oh, what a fantastical, wonderful dreamer he was, hmm. is kind of missing the fact that a lot of this movie is kind of embittered by how he's treated by British society, by how uh, the world around him is, explodes into war, and so noble, uh, seemingly noble endeavors like uh, increasing our knowledge of history and hmm. other cultures. Uh, kind of goes by the wayside. I when I initially started watching it, I was like, okay, this seems to be in the vein of a lot of the old safari pictures that we used to see dominating uh, mm. Hollywood in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, it's a genre that's largely dead, but uh, the idea of oh, we're gonna have uh, some strapping well, hunt, some strapping British hunter go into Africa it's, or it's South the, America. The, the, the great white hunter cliche. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's your it's the H. Ryder Haggard. It's mm. the uh, 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 who did Sean Connery play in? Uh, oh, Richard Kipling. No, no, no. In, in, I he would yes, but that's not what I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> in um, uh, *Leave a Shorty Gentleman*. Oh. Uh... Oh, he's Alan Quartermain. Alan Quartermain. The Alan Quartermain kind of thing. Where, like, I am the noble mm. white man and I'm going to come in. Here. Like, no, all of that's bad. But this was dominating 
a lot of the adventure stories. Well, 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 and I so think this is I, actually... I, I feel uh, like this was trying to like take that kind of concept of here's all like the hunky white dudes going into yeah. the jungle, but treat it more realistically. It's treated I kind of thought realist- that's what I was getting at, but then the movie kind of turns a hard right at the end. The, the movie, I think, is ultimately trying to be very anti-colonialist. I think because yeah. what he is trying to prove is uh, to the British society mm. that they they aren't all that. That yeah. they are incorrect about something, and that these yeah. uh, these people in another country that they've discovered and have previously were very racist to and assumed were uh, not intelligent enough yeah. to build their own civilization had. Yeah, and that was that's what he was sort of trying to prove. His goal at the end of all of this was to confront colonialism. Yeah, uh, I wish that had read a little bit better. Yeah. That the char- the the char- that was his stated goal that he said these British people don't know what they're talking about. I need to, like, I now have this obsession yeah. the movie, with proving them wrong. The movie gets completely distracted from that constantly. And every mm. once in a while it comes up, but it always feels, le- it feels less like the point of the film than merely an obstacle in his way. Yeah. And as a result, it ends up just not really having the impact that it should, given the amount of, like production, uh, that went uh, into the amount it, of production yeah. that went into it, the amount of effort that went into it, the clear talent on display here. It just never quite, it, it, it never quite nails it. It never mm. quite gets off the ground. It's not a bad movie. I can see where everyone liked it so much, but I also don't feel like it has the lingering impact uh, mm. uh, after you watch it of going, wow, what a journey. You know, like I don't mm. really have that from it. And um, that's a real bummer. What was the, mm. um, I, well, it's. Yeah. It does have a little bit more of, like, less than sort of a traditional novel narrative, because this is based on true life. And it yeah. has, uh, if you've ever read a very old uh, biograph- uh, biography, or mm-hmm. uh, if you've, like, if you've read, for instance, uh, the early works of Charles Darwin, Voyage of the mm-hmm. Beagle. Yeah. First of all, Charles Darwin, one of the most boring authors you could hope to oh, read. Yeah. Uh, there's actually notorious stories about how uh, Darwin was hired... Uh, when he was writing Voyage of the Beagle, hmm. as uh, the captain's like company, the, the captain's conversation man, like that was somebody you could hire. So you could bring them on a ship, and they would just sort of talk to you and entertain you, and they would say interesting things. And this, and uh, Darwin was an intelligent guy. They brought him on board, and he was so boring he got fired. Yeah. Like that's how boring he was. He couldn't be a conversation guy. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Like, I'm going to talk about the nostrils of pigeons. It's very interesting. You notice in a couple generations, their nostrils get larger. What the fuck are you talking about? Tell, tell me an interesting story. My God, uh, does anyone fart in this? Yeah. Anything. <laughs> tell me a bit with a dog. Well, dog's nostrils. No! <laughs> the pigeons, okay, yes, the pigeons have nostrils. Do they hold knives? You know what? <laughs> tell me, yeah, uh, they're, they're very dry, these works of literature, and yeah. they don't have a conventional arc. They're not about... Uh, mm starting a quest and finding an end to it. It's just mm. about gathering information. And I think that's sort of what James Gray was trying to depict was yeah. this information gathering trick trips and mm. how gathering information is a little bit of a perilous journey, but it's not going to be an adventure with a satisfying conclusion because when you're conducting a scientific experiment or you're looking for an, uh, evidence mm. or you're exploring the conclusion isn't written yet. Yeah. And so you're going to go through a lot of hardships and not necessarily come to a conclusion. Yeah. So I think that's why uh, this, sto- uh, this film but was I told like... in sort of the episodic fashion that it was, well, that he fine. went, he came back, he went, he came back. I just feel like there's something, there's two, I feel like there's two kinds of approaches to that that mm-hmm. make sense. One is almost comical. We keep trying and we find nothing. Like it's, mm-hmm. an, it's almost an exercise in futility. Yeah, yeah. And there's something about that. It's like, again with the, ah! But then there's also a sort of fatalistic element to it. Like, is this hopeless? And I also just don't get the sense from that because that's not his journey at all. He's told by a, a psychic in the trenches at World War One that he's yeah. destined to find what he's looking for. And I'm like, no, don't do that. <laughs> the movie I was thinking of a lot when I was watching this, and it actually came out a year before this and covered something kind of similar. Uh-huh. was a really fantastic uh, Colombian film called Embrace of the Serpent. You ever see that? That black and white film was nominated for Best oh, International Feature. Yes, I did. It's yeah. very, very Herzogian. Yes, movie. Yeah. very much so. Uh, it's Brace of the Serpent. Uh, it's directed by Ciro Guerra, and uh, it is a story of uh, a shaman in the Amazon jungle uh, who, at two points in his life, goes on a journey mm. up the Amazon River. This is a terrific with a, movie, by the way. Yeah, fantastic yeah. motion. And my 
God, is it gorgeous. It's all shot in black and white, but it's incredibly stark and pretty, and it, it leads to something cool at the end. But, um, yeah, he takes two journeys through the Amazon with uh, British explorers. And one, I think that one American and one... No, sorry, one American and one German explorer. That's what it is. Um, and it talks about a lot of the same things here, but it's got... It's uh, focus is a little bit more interesting. It understands uh, that this is very much a spiritual journey, whether you mean mean for it to be or not. Mm. Something that I don't think... Uh, well, I, I think Z doesn't have that element, if, really. I feel like right at the end, it tries to throw it in. Like, right at the end, that's the Anna Guillory uh, speech. Uh-huh. They're trying to throw bit, it in yeah. a little bit. And I'm like, you didn't have any of that before. You gotta build to that. At least set it up a little bit. Like, you don't really have it in there. Like, I just feel like Embrace of the Serpent is kind of the more interesting movie to me. So, oh, if you well, like that, the that's, Lost... That's for sure. <laughs> I feel like if you like The Lost City of Zed, I know a lot of people do, and I'm not shit-talking this movie. Mm. I'm just trying to tell you why it didn't hit me the way it hit a lot of people. It's, it's a good movie. I just don't love it. Embrace of the Serpent is the movie that does it for me, that covers something similar. So mm. if you haven't seen Embrace of the Serpent, I highly recommend it. It's a fantastic motion picture. Absolutely gorgeous. Very different looking, but also shot in the jungle. Just absolutely incredible. So, yeah. Hmm. Uh, and that rather reminds me of Inkheart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess... Again, I, we, he wrote of his travels... Maybe, because again, if the idea is that... We've made a lot of literary references. Oh, oh, oh. What do you got? What do you got? I think I got something. It's thin, but I think... It's thin, but I think I got something. All right. What is the making of a movie if not being a silver tongue? Here's the story of this explorer. His works, his, his adventures have been written about, and then we bring them to life through cinema and a film like The Lost City of Zed. Uh-huh. I told you it was thin. All right. <laughs> I told you it was thin. Yeah, well, I'll take it. Sure. All right, fine. They, they uh, are practically identical. Watch these back-to-back. Please. Perfect made, double feature. They're made for each other. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, for listening. And thank you, everybody, for your patience. Uh, we are, we're hopefully back. I mean, obviously, mm. that's the plan. Uh, you know, I came back from my vacation, and then I, you know, the day, the day after that, you check Twitter, and it's like, what happened with SCOTUS? Fuck. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard to focus on anything else right now. We know that we need to, like... There's there's a lot going on. Anyway, uh, but next time on Critically Reclaimed... Let's focus on this for a moment. Compartmentalize. Uh, next time on Critically Reclaimed, over at our Patreon page, you can vote at any one of our tiers, even $1 a month. You can vote for what film we're going to be doing next. You can also, now, we change some of our uh, rewards on the tier... Uh, if you're not a fan of listening to ads on the podcast, all of our main podcasts on this podcast feed for even $1 a month are available ad-free. At the $1 level. At the $1 level and up. And of course, uh, and above that, you're going to get stuff like exclusive podcasts about the Academy Awards, reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Uh, we're doing a weekly podcast reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever. We're doing commentary tracks, and now at our top tier, we're also doing uh, bi-weekly trivia nights, where you can test your trivia knowledge against me and or Whitney, depending on our schedule. Uh, so, uh, there's cool stuff going on there. But uh, the poll... For the next episode of Critically Reclaimed, we're going back to the Criterion channel. They got some cool stuff there. They always do. But, you know, it's the beginning of the month. They add some neat stuff. And so here's uh, what we what we fell upon. No connection other than this is all stuff we, we were interested in on Criterion. Uh, one uh, is me and Orson Welles. Speaking of Orson Welles, talked about him earlier in the episode. Uh, it is a film by Richard Linklater. Uh, starring Zac Efron and some guy. Kristen McKay plays Kristen Orson McKay. Welles. Not... He- not- uh, Not Angus McFadden. McFadden. Uh, yeah. No, it's Christian McKay, and he is terrific. So uh, the, the movie is terrific. It's one I've seen. Oh, I okay. guess I've given it away. Well, I've, that, seen who that cares? One. I've mentioned before that I haven't had the opportunity. It's a movie that kind of came and went. It was largely unavailable for a long time, but me and Orson Welles is available. That's one option. Uh, second option is Dorothy Arzner's Merrily We Go to Hell, <laughs> which I assume is a horror movie about going to hell. Uh, Dorothy Arzner is a, a filmmaker that I didn't know a lot about. It, just sort of a name I heard floating around and uh, became a lot more interested in watching Dorothy, Dorothy Arzner films. Mm-hmm. Thanks to B. Peterson, uh, who is currently on a, a, a personal sabbatical. sabbatical. Yeah. Um, but uh, she and I had a podcast together. We were doing uh, all about Ovid, where we reviewed Ovid films. And uh, she was also doing podcasts about Dorothy Arzner. So, yeah. um, 
the idea of Marilyn, we go. Dorothy Eisner is uh, maybe the most prominent uh, female filmmaker of the early golden age of Hollywood era, sound era mm-hmm. in particular. There was a lot of female filmmakers in the silent era, fewer in the sound era for a while. Dorothy Eisner made a lot of films, uh, one of which is called uh, Merrily We Go to Hell. It is a story about, I think it's a pre code film, so it gets a little, a little saucy. Uh, about marital infidelity, it stars Frederick March, Sylvia Sidney, and in an early role from Cary Grant. So that's young, an option as well. Young Cary Grant. Uh, next up, we have The Chung King Express from director Wong Kar Wai, which is actually a pair of stories, uh, one of which is about a cop who becomes uh, fascinated by uh, an alluring, I think, thief, criminal, certainly. Mm. And another one is about a young woman uh, who I think she works at like a noodle shop or something, and she becomes infatuated uh, with a man and starts secretly insinuating herself into his life in ways that he never may never appreciate. Uh I'll I'll uh, 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 break ranks here and just tell you, Chunky Express is really good. <laughs> uh, and then, lastly, uh, over in the black exploitation section of of Criterion, uh, we've got Black Caesar, uh, which is one of the more prominent black exploitation films that I I'll just say it I haven't seen that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it stars Fred Williamson, uh, and uh, yeah, it's got a musical score by James Brown. Like holy shit! That, that's that's worth seeing it just because of that. That's 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 fucking amazing right there. So, anyway, that's uh, those are your options: me and Orson Welles, Merrily We Go to Hell, Chunking Express, and Black Caesar. I can't even imagine what the double feature would be if you decide to make this another tie. Please don't. <laughs> don't make it a tie. Please spare us. Make it a clear winner this time. It doesn't have to be that clear. It doesn't have to be like a, a, a you know. A, no one, no one needs to have like a a, a major lead here. Just mm. we just have a winner <laughs> this time. Make it a lot easier on us. Um, anyway, that's it for critically reclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you would like to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, uh, we would love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, or you can also send us snail mail. Send us an actual physical letter. We like that. And uh, Whitney, how can they do that? Uh, send it to P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. And, of course, uh, if you would rather contact us another way, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Um, yeah. That's basically that. Oh, uh, and also, uh, real fast, uh, my partner, M. Lapis da Silva, has a short story in a new book collection uh, called Your Body Is Not Your Body, uh, which is uh, set up to uh, help trans youth in Texas uh, because, uh, well, it's a rough time out there. Um, But it's called Your Body Is Not Your Body, a new weird horror anthology to benefit trans youth in Texas. A lot of LGBTQ IA plus authors have been uh, involved in this uh, publication, uh, my partner included. Uh, and um, yeah, it goes to a good cause. There's a lot of great stories in it. You can get an ebook of it on uh, on Kindle, or there's some definitely. Uh, I think there's some uh, uh, print uh, versions being made as well. You can find that online very easily. It's from Tenebrous Press, T E N E B R O U S. Uh, anyway, your support would be very supportive, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you for all of that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time on Critically Reclaimed. The podcast ends now. Thank you.